if that the heavens do not their visible spirit send quickly down to tame the vile offenses, it will come. Humanity must perforce prey on itself like monsters of the deep. It's priming us to look for heavenly spirits. Do we see any? Are there heavenly spirits who prevent, who help prevent humanity from consuming itself? In some ways, Cordelia is a savior-like presence. The description of her is almost like she's this perfect being that she's coming to save Lear and she does this out of love. I think human beings can be part of that pantheon of deities. There are a wealth of people within this play who are doing good things for other people and really there's only three villains. The humans are the ones who are playing these gentle spirits. Mm. Today's recording, I'll chat with Noel and Bailey about Act 4 of King Lear. But to begin with a quote of the day, I wanted to read a few more sentences by William Hazlitt, who in 1818 wrote this about Shakespeare, that he was, quote, the least of an egotist that it was possible to be, and nothing in himself. Hazlitt claimed that Lear could embody all that others were or that they could become, that Shakespeare had in himself the germs of every faculty and feeling, and he only had to think of anything in order to become that thing, with all the circumstances belonging to it. This is a great description of Shakespeare's ability to inhabit every character imaginable. Characters as diverse as Cordelia and Goneril and Regan, or as The Fool and Lear. John Keats, the English poet, read Hazlitt and praised this ability in Shakespeare to seem to be able to shapeshift. Keats used the phrase chameleon poet, poet that has no identity but is filled up with the identities of everyone and everything else. And I think this is a great description of one of the things that makes Shakespeare so good at presenting complex and believable human characters. And for more about this and much else, let's go into that chat between uh, me and Noel and Bailey. Hi, Noel. How are you? Hi, Bailey. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you, you've alluded in, a, in an earlier email that you have a busy semester, taking a lot of credits or something? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking 17 and a half credits, and almost all of them are English credits, so it's a lot of reading. Hi, Bailey. How are you? Doing fantastic. Are you equally kind of drowning under a pile of texts? I am a pre-business major, so not so much reading classes, but more math related class. Well, I mean, that that could be equally time consuming. I really enjoy it though. Excellent. That's great. We're going to talk about act four. So having said that, we'll dive right in then. Uh, Let's remind ourselves before we dive in, let's remind ourselves where act three ends so that when we start talking about act four, it won't feel so out of context. Well, the first act of act four is when Gloucester was just barely blinded and he's being led by the old man and then uh, and uh, yes, Act Three, Scene Seven, ends with the blinding. Uh, the servants kind of talk about how they can help him, and they leave. That's right. And meanwhile, where is Lear while this is happening? He's still in the hovel, right? As far as we know, he's still in the hovel talking with Tom, Crazy Tom. The next we time really we know. see Lear, he is um, he's in Dover. He's on, and he's like got this crown of uh, flowers. He's wearing this crown of flowers. Yeah, excellent. 
Act four, scene one, we don't have to go through like one page at a time, but I do want to make sure that we're attempting something like coverage. Gloucester is blind. He says in act four, scene one, I stumbled when I saw, right? So he kind of is admitting his past blindness, which is good. Shows a kind of moral insight. Um, Edgar sees him blinded and says to himself, oh gods, who is can say I am at the worst? I am worse than e'er I was. And then later he says, the worst is not so long as we can say this is the worst. Can we ever say, what is the worst thing that can happen to a human, do you think? I mean, maybe that's a stupid question, but is it possible for a human to say this is as bad as it gets? I'd say from uh, the context, what he's saying here is the worst is that he could no longer speak and or that he is dead, right? The death is the worst that could happen to a human. Okay. Given that there's several other characters that think that suicide is better than continuing to live throughout the play, uh, I would say this isn't consistent thought with all of the characters, but at least for Edgar, that is his view on life. That as long as he's still alive, that's better than being dead. Yeah, that, that's a, and a great contrast with other characters. Gloucester has become suicidal, as we see here in a minute. I would add here to I am the worst. I think that... Um, I don't remember who says it, but someone once said that hell would be to not accomplish your true potential. I think that in some ways he's referring to the fact that he may have lost part of his identity or his will to live. And also that Gloucester has also lost his his will to live and is not completely true to his own character. So I think in that sense, that that is the worst that a person can be is to lose their moral compass and not to become the person that they're, they can become. Gloucester is now saying things like I stumbled when I saw. So yes, he has been blinded. He's been brutally assaulted, but he has gained more wisdom than he has ever had in the play. So he, he might be making a kind of physical degradation, but he is making a kind of moral, he's making some kind of moral progress, which isn't nothing. It's certainly not the worst. The worst might be that he is physically assaulted and remains morally blind. So at least he's making spiritual progress. That's certainly not the worst. I like that comment a lot. So this act contains some of the most famous lines in the play. Gloucester commenting on the condition of these characters says, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. I don't know where exa exactly he refers to the gods later on in this act as ever gentle gods. Right after they supposedly saved him. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that moment in more detail. That's right, Noel. Uh, right after Edgar tricks him into remaining alive, Gloucester says, oh, the ever gentle gods. So I don't know. These seem like contradictory statements. What is your opinion about this contradiction? Another really interesting choice that Shakespeare made here in that these guys, the, they are not worshiping the Christian God. They are always referring to the Roman gods. And the pantheon of gods is generally much more known for their inconsistencies than a Christian God. But time period wise, I don't think there's ever a time in England where they would be worshiping the Roman gods when they're in this kind of political yeah. Stage. So he's made up this time period where the where England is worshiping the Roman gods yeah. and the Christian god really isn't mentioned. Um, so it, in that way, like the, it shows the changeableness of these other gods, where he's allowed to talk about that maybe in a way that he wouldn't be able to if he was referring to the Christian god that the, his listeners were worshiping. 
This is a great thing to say. I mean, there are many inconsistencies in terms of history and chronology in Shakespeare. I mean, in Julius Caesar, we have, it supposedly takes place 2000 years ago, but there's like a, there's the chiming of a clock that we hear in Julius Caesar. Here, you're absolutely right, Noel. This clearly takes place in a pre-Christian Britain. I mean, there's, there absolutely was a time that Britain existed with kings and kingdoms before Christianity, but they were not, I mean, and Romans maybe lived there. I mean, I don't think native Britons were worshiping Apollo. If you let yourself, this is just like a general disclaimer. It's hard to enjoy Shakespeare if you let yourself get caught up in these um, inaccuracies. You know, you just have to go with it and, for, you know, just forgive the guy. But what, what do we think about this worldview? Which of these statements, the gods are cruel or the gods are gentle, which of these statements seems a truer description of the play or of the world? I think it's really interesting that he makes this quote about the as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods right after his eyes have been gouged out because that is how he feels about the world at the time. Mm. He's just gone through a very painful experience and basically had no control over it when his servants are watching it. Whereas later on, right after he says the gentle gods is right after he does not die after he tried to kill himself. So I think in some ways, the second statement is a bit of mockery to where he didn't, um, he didn't necessarily want a gentle God. He wanted to be successful in killing himself, but instead he Mm -hmm. got this gentle God that perhaps was not the one that he wanted in the moment. You know, that had never occurred to me that it's possibly slightly ironic. I think Gloucester is genuinely happy to be convinced to stay in life. But yeah, you're, you're probably not wrong. There could be a tint, there could be a current, an aligning of, this could be one more way in which the gods play with us for sport. You know, when we want to die, they won't let us. And when we don't, they kill us. Yeah, I'll have to think more about that. That's a great thing to say. Uh, henceforth, I'll bear affliction till it's to cry enough, enough, and die, which seems to take a, for, for him, he is taking a new courage to live and not to bow out when affliction gets too hard, but fight against affliction until affliction gives up, Yeah, which was a revitalization of him because of this faked miracle. He's very, I love that. We'll return to that because we're going to look at the cliff scene in some detail, and that's right at the end of the cliff scene. So we'll return to that. I like that moment a lot. But before we do, in scene two, I wanted to ask you about these words of Albany's. So Albany kind of slowly learns about the villainy of his wife and sister-in-law and starts saying that, oh, you're tigers, not daughters. You know, what have you done to this gracious, aged man? and makes his own comment on the scene. So Gloucester's kind of meta comment on this universe is, well, sometimes it's as flies to wanton boys, are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Sometimes it's gentle gods. Albany's commentary on this universe is this. So this is act four, scene two, lines 45-ish. Albany says, if that the heavens do not their visible spirits send quickly down to tame the vile offenses, it will come, it meaning the apocalypse, I guess the end of times. Humanity must perforce prey on itself like monsters of the deep. So he's asked, it's not really a question, it's a kind of conditional. If heaven doesn't send down its visible spirits, then humanity will self-destruct. I feel like this statement by Albany is, is raising the expectations 
It's priming us to look for heavenly spirits. Do we see any? Do we find any? Are there heavenly spirits who prevent, who help prevent humanity from consuming itself? Yeah, I don't have the right answer that I'm secretly hoping that you'll get. You know what I mean? I just want to know your take on this. In some ways, Cordelia is a savior-like presence. Later on, I think it's in Act 4, when the description of her is almost like she's this perfect being that she's coming to save Lear, and she does this out of love. So she's definitely this silver lining I think of the play that could be partially what Albany is foreshadowing. Very good. And she even says in that scene, which we'll get to, because it's at the very end of this act, I think. She even almost directly quotes Christ. And she says something like, I am about my father's business. You, you noticed this. Yeah. yeah. It's in act four that she says that. Yeah. So I, you're, uh, you're absolutely right to go right to Cordelia. She is a heavenly spirit for sure. Noel, what would you add? When Gloucester is saying that the gods just want to kill people like flies, it's right after a human being has taken out his eyes. And after he says the gods are gentle, it is after a human has faked a miracle. Mm-hmm. We don't really see any direct heavenly help from these the Roman gods that they're praying to. However, I think there are a couple of things that the Pantheon, that choosing to use the Pantheon helps with. Uh, for one, it kind of links into a previous co- podcast where you talked about there's no authority. When there's mm. lots of gods, there's there's no authority. And there, at the time, there was no king. There was lots of people pretending to be king. But the other is, if you have a pantheon of people, I think human beings can be part of that pantheon of deities, right? So you have some human beings that are acting cruel, but there are so many humans uh, throughout this play that are doing kind things for people. Uh, the old man who leads them, the servant who gives his life to try to protect Gloucester, uh, Albany who changes his own view, the the gentleman who and just finds and is like, could you help me? And the gentleman's like, yeah. And he helps throughout the rest of the play. Uh, all of the people from France who came to help a deposed mm-hmm. king, Edgar, like there are a wealth of people within this play who are doing good things for other people. And really there's only three villains. Uh, and so in that are causing all of the harm. And so I think that a lot of the times, if we, the humans are the ones who are playing these gentle spirits mm. throughout the life, much like Cordelia is, but it's uh, throughout, throughout the play, humans are given divine aspects. They're, they do something and then someone accords those actions to gods. What a great thing to say. Your list of heavenly spirits vastly outnumbers mine that I made, my mental list. I mean, my list is certainly Cordelia is maybe at the top of that. Edgar, of course, Kent. Yeah, I thought about that servant that tries to stop. But Noel, you're absolutely right. There's the whole army of France that's coming to help. There's these anonymous gentlemen that come and help escort people to and fro. You know, And in fact, you've, you've made me realize something I hadn't before. Most of the people in this play are good and decent and noble. You're right. There are only a handful, a small handful, you said the number three, of villainous actors. It's a great thing to say, persuading me maybe to believe that it's not the gods that kill us for their sport, but it's just these few humans that do, you know? So, and I love your connection to the Pantheon. I mean, you were in that 201 class with us when we read, you know, the Iliad and something that's great about that book is that it illustrates the ways in which humans can often, maybe always, 
are capable of more courage, more sacrifice, more nobility than the gods because the humans have more to lose. You know, they can sacrifice more because they're more vulnerable. They can become, humans can become kind of demigods or heroic. They can become heroic and respectable in a way that the gods never can. Why does Edgar, isn't it weird that Edgar tricks his father into thinking that he's leapt off a cliff? He, so he, he sees that his father has been blinded. I know what I'll do. I'll pretend to be someone my father doesn't know. He's asking me to like lead him to this cliff. I know I'll escort him up there and quote unquote, help him commit suicide. They won't really be a cliff. There's nothing to jump over, but I'll make him think that he fell through the air and miraculously landed. Why? I don't, this is again, totally open-ended. There could be many answers to this question. Why does he adopt this strategy and not some other strategy? I thought it was interesting that he didn't reveal himself right away because he says that if only he could see his son, it would be as if he had his eyesight again. So I would almost think that he, if he revealed himself, he wouldn't even have the desire to commit suicide. So that's one thing that I thought about a lot too, that I thought was really interesting. Maybe in some ways Edgar dug a hole so deep he couldn't get himself out of it, that he had to just go with it and at least save his father's life, even if it's in kind of an an interesting way. But I think that Edgar, even though um, maybe his father hasn't treated him very well that he still loves his father and doesn't want him to die so in some ways his father has to go through this whole motion of nearly dying or at least thinking that he's almost died to be able to realize the value of his life and the purpose of his life that what a great comment i mean edgar edgar himself has just gone through this exercise of reduction to absolute baseness you know edgar i nothing am living in the hollows, eating, remember cow dung salads, remember this? <laughs> eating cow dung salads, wow. Utterly reduced to nothing, one of the key words of the play. A kind of refiner's fire, maybe, yeah? Taught him new things about life and new things about humanity. Perhaps you're right, Bailey. I'm sure that you're onto something very wise here. Edgar knows that to make his father's change of heart as permanent as possible, He has to bring him to a similar precipice, literally and metaphorically. He has to face, he has to help his father face rock bottom, again, literally and metaphorically. Noelle, what would you add? I like her answer better. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to say that trickery is Edgar's go-to form of problem solving. Uh, That's when he is divested of everything, he decides to go for trickery. When his brother is initially like, your father is going to, is mad at you, but I have this idea. He does not stand and say, I will tell the truth. He goes in line and he fall, he becomes part of this trick, which is what allows him to get kicked out in the first place. Yeah. So when his father is in trouble himself, uh, he goes to the same thing. He always falls into this trickery. But also, at least for him, character-wise, and this goes a little bit outside the scope of the fourth act, he has debased himself so much that he isn't, I don't don't think he's ready to become himself again. He goes through several reiterations of different characters, gradually moving up the social scale throughout the uh, fourth and fifth acts until he finally becomes the the noble prince that he once was. And so to jump from the base figure to this is who I really am again, I don't think he was ready for that mentally. Wow. I thought, you know, I could just do these as, I could just do these podcasts as monologues. Here's what I think about Act 4, you know. 
thought, no, it's going to be boring. And, you know, who knows what I'm not seeing in these plays. So I'll have students come on the podcast and chat with me. We'll, ha- we'll do dialogues, you know. And I always, every single time, am told things about these texts that I've never realized before. It had never really clicked for me before you said it, Noel, that Edgar doesn't go from zero to suddenly the hero. He, he, he crawls out of the hovel. He pretends to be this other kind of homeless guy, not a mad Potama Bedlam, but just a random homeless dude to escort his father up. The cliff. So that's like one level up. Yeah. And then he pretends to be this kind of anonymous soldier or knight to fight this duel with his brother, which is another level up. And then, then it's finally, he declares himself, I am Edgar, thy father's son, he says in Act 5. I mean, I'll have to chew on that for a long time, but it had never occurred to me. There, there must be something meaningful. Shakespeare must be teaching us something meaningful about, first of all, the importance of the refiner's fire. I mean, that I, I had kind of made that connection, but it might take us a while to crawl out of that hole and line upon line, precept upon precept, bit by bit, this is how we grow. You know, this is how we grow, not in leaps and bounds, but bit, slowly, bit by bit. Uh, Noel, this this bit about um, performance and trickery isn't irrelevant. I mean, it's no less significant. What do either of you think is the significant... I mean, Shakespeare is obsessed with performance, obviously, for obvious reasons. But every play, he'll sneak this concept into. Every single play. People disguising themselves as other people, people putting on plays. Why? What is the fascination of performance? Or what is the importance of performance? Does it does it have any moral significance or is it just like he's obsessed with it because he's an actor and a playwright and the, there's no other answer than that? I mean, I really don't know. I'll, I'll make it slightly more focused, this question. Is there a difference between performance and lies? Are, is, some ver, is some trickery good? If some performances are good, does that mean that some lies are good? You see, this, the question's getting slightly more provocative. Depends on why you're doing it. They, they say the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I think a lot of the time, what you're, the reason for why you're doing something is really depends on whether or not what you're doing is good or bad. If you're out there teaching what you believe to be the word of God because you want money, then that is not okay. But if you're out there because you want to bless other people's lives and because you really truly believe it's good, then that is an okay thing to do. And so the, the reason for why someone does something is more important, especially if we're talking morality outside the play where you're looking at a god who bases judges morality and he's looking about why we do something not necessarily what we're doing i like that intentions really do matter for sure i mean edmund lies and performs goneril and regan lie and perform what are their intentions mostly nefarious mostly self-interested i think as a playwright this is really brilliant of shakespeare because it takes an extra level a very skilled actor to do this kind of performance because not only are they acting, but they're acting within their acting. And I think that can be really challenging as an actor. So it just goes to show um, the quality of an actor to be able to pour, perform this way. You, you, no, I to perform this way. You can imagine the actors in his company being like, really, Will? I mean, this, you want me to do, you want me to be Edgar, who's Tom, who's this other thing, layer and layer and layer, give me a break. Can I ask you one detail about this? So this is act four, scene six, where this cliff scene happens. I've always been slightly puzzled by how bad of a liar Edgar is. Act four, scene six begins. Gloucester, when shall I come to the top of that same hill? Edgar, you do climb up it now. Look how we labor. Gloucester, methinks the ground is even. 
Edgar, horrible Steve, right? So I like that too, because first of all, like how big of a fool does he think his father is? No, this isn't flat. You're actually on this really steep incline. I mean, he thinks he's going to get away with this lie. That's weird to me. And then Edgar says, hark, do you hear the sea? Gloucester says, no, truly. Edgar, why then your other senses grow imperfect by your eyes anguish? He's pretending that the sea is really loud. But then later, he brings Gloucester right to the cliff's edge. And he's describing what he can see below. He says things like halfway down hangs one that gathers samphire, deadly trade. Methinks he seems no bigger than his head. The fishermen that walked upon the beach appear like mice, etc., etc. And then he says the murmuring surge that on the unnumbered idle pebble chafes cannot be heard so high. And it was only about 15 lines earlier when he said, can't you hear the sea? We're really close. It's really loud. Shakespeare is not a dummy. Newsflash. Shakespeare was a smart guy. There are several versions of this play, so he would have had the chance to correct this error out of the play. This is clearly intentional. He wanted this little slip up to remain in the text. Edgar is forgetting his own fiction. Why? I don't know. What do you think? A part of me wants to say that this is kind of a comedic moment, despite the the father is trying to commit suicide. But for the people watching, it's very much a comedic thing to have this character convincing this other character uh, about this blatant falsehood. Yeah. It could just be for comedic effect to have that slip up in there, obviously, to to get some laughs, to show that this is, it, it makes it a little bit more funny. You, you could easily be right. I could easily see a director taking this in a comedic way. Like, can't you feel how steep this hill is? Ha, 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 ha. Gloss saying no. It's like, oh, it's really steep, you know, the audience. Ha, ha, ha. I myself am a terrible liar. I cannot lie if my own life depended on it. I just am not a very good liar. So I can imagine at this point, maybe Edgar is the same way. And he's telling this to his father, hoping that his father will believe him because he's lost his eyesight, thinking that he's also losing his hearing and of his other senses. But then he's gradually realizing, wait, no, my father's going to totally catch on to my life. So he's kind of just slipping up and and trying to make it more believable to his father what's actually going on without realizing that he's um, he's going to get caught for his lie. Yeah, that makes me wonder, what you just said makes me wonder if Edgar wants the lie to be unbelievable. Maybe Edgar's doing this on purpose. This is so speculative. Probably can't be proven. I mean, later on in the fifth act, he does, he shakes off the, like, because he falls and he's like, yeah, the guy was with you. It was like a little devil thing. And I'm yeah. like a sailor now. And then he switches again into like this gentleman type character who is who is calling him father. He calls him father and the father's like, who are you? And he's like, I, I guess I'm not who I think I am making up another person. But he keeps That's calling right. him father. He kind of gives up. But he's also a good enough liar that apparently his father can't tell it's him through like five different personalities. And when he does <laughs> tell him, his father is so shocked, he kills over dead. Like, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's such a bizarre thing. And it, what happens on the ground is even more bizarre. He, Edgar pretends to come and he's like, oh, I saw, I was looking up at the top of the cliff and saw some horrible demon talking to you. So Edgar is, he gets like carried away in his lie. The lie snowballs, you know, it becomes more and more extravagant. Anyway, we'll move on. But I just love what Edgar says at the beginning. Like, 
Uh, this is Act 4, Scene 6, line maybe 50. Hadst thou been aught but gossamer, feathers, air, so many fathom down precipitating, thou'dst shivered like an egg, but thou dost breathe, hast heavy substance, bleedst not, speakest, art sound. Ten masts at each make not the altitude, which thou hast perpendicularly fell. Thy life's a miracle. This is the kind of thesis statement of the lie, right? This is, I think this is why Edgar has been doing it, because he wants to permanently imprint into his father's brain, your life is a miracle. Do not forfeit it. You must live. And then this is the lines that Noel alluded to. Gloucester says, I do remember now. Henceforth, I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself, enough, enough, and die. An extremely wonderful declaration of his commitment to stay alive. Like, I'm going to live so long that all of my afflictions will get sick of living and that they'll, they'll be suicidal. <laughs> so wonderfully extreme. Okay. Stumbles onto the scene, King Lear. <clears throat> Enter Lear, comma, mad. Any thoughts about that stage direction? We're being told his madness is not fake, you know? He wanted to prevent anyone from writing essay after essay after <laughs> Hamlet about whether or not Hamlet was actually mad. <laughs> so people were confused. So uh, you're not confused this time. You had to endure Hamlet's labyrinthine madness with, uh, with me in 295, didn't you, Noel? Yep. Yes, Shakespeare. I'm sick of this. Am I mad or am I not? I will now just, what a great answer. Yeah, I will now just tell the audience. Professors, stop. Put your pens down. In my stage note, it also says be decked with weeds. That's also pretty symbolic that he's covered with the earth. So where he was once up high and mighty, maybe above nature, he has entered a storm, but now he's the lowest of the low with the weeds on his head, almost like a crown. Very good. That's, a, that's an extremely important thing to notice. If we remind ourselves how he enters the play, he enters the play... Gloucester, you don't have to flip there. This is way back in Act 1, Scene 1. Gloucester, the king is coming. Senate, then, they, then these are the stage directions. Senate, enter one bearing a coronet. This is a crown. Then Lear, Cornwall, Albany. So he enters the play with a crown and trumpets and this procession of nobles and servants. He enters in the most conspicuously king-like manner. We imagine that the crown is made of, I don't know, maybe gold or some precious metal. Trumpets made of some kind of fancy, shiny metal. All of that here has been, as you as you use the perfect word, his crown is now made of the earth. He's been living in and on the earth for a while now. So he's lost the fake, fancy pomp of a king, but he still retains something of a king. He's still a king in maybe a new way. He's a king in a new way. So he has a new crown. And the way in which he is a king is much less shiny, but much more grounded and earthy, and hard won. Um, oh, thou side-piercing sight, Edgar says, you know, another reference to Christ. It's weird how these pre-Christians, <laughs> another thing you just have to kind of let Shakespeare do from time to time. It's weird how these pre-Christians somehow knew all of these Christian allusions and were dropping them in, yeah? Oh, thou side-piercing sight. They're talking. Gloucester, who is blind, I know that voice. Lear, ha, Goneril with a white beard, ha, Regan. They flattered me like a dog and told me I had the white hairs in my beard ere the black ones were there, right? Told me I was wise, told me that I had the wisdom of old age. My whole life, they told me that, even before even before I had old age. You know, he didn't have the wisdom yet. To say I and no to everything that I said I and no to was no good divinity. When the rain came to wet me once and the wind to make me chatter, 
when the thunder would not peace at my bidding, there I found them, there I smelt them out. Go to, they are not men of their words. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. I am not ague proof. Thoughts about these lines? It reminds me a lot of Richard II, where the king has a very similar realization. Uh, you know, take off your crowns. I am not a king. I need same things as everyone else. I The only thing I remember him saying is I need friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the realization that even though everyone has always flattered them and played up this image of being a king and being immortal, that that trickery is it's a playing thing. They're playing king. But in reality, they, they still are mortal. And once the people who are telling those lies are stripped away, they're able to realize what they really are. This is what happens when you flatter or when you shelter or when you baby, right? You can raise people. Eight, people can live 80 years and not realize that they're mortal or vulnerable, not realize that the thunder doesn't actually obey them. He has been so sheltered and so flattered and so lied to. They told me I was everything. Tis a lie. I am not ague proof. You can hear him realizing this as he expresses it. Like, oh, I'm 80 years old and finally realizing I, I'm mortal. And then Richard II, he, Shakespeare is obsessed with this. Yeah, I need bread, taste want. I need friends, something like that. Feel want, taste bread, need friends or something. The circle that crowns a king, something, something. And then with a little pin, you know, and there's no more the king. Uh-huh. Yeah, all it takes for this immortal king to not be a king anymore is this little small piece of metal, you know? And I'm dead just like everyone else. He had no idea. Um, One of the themes that I'm really loving in this play so far is the comparison to animals. So right here, he says, they flattered me like a dog. And then in this act as well, earlier in act three, he says, dog hearted daughters. Mm. And then even earlier in act two, Albany is talking to his wife and says, tigers, not daughters. Mm. So I just love that it keeps coming back to this theme of like, what is the difference between a human and an animal? And here he's comparing himself to an animal because maybe because of his blindness to flattery. We're getting and just also maybe, to a dog in the fifth act. Even if that were my enemy's dog that had bit, I still would have let you in. Wow, you guys read the play so carefully. This is so great. What is the difference between a human and an animal? We have so much to cover, but in 30 seconds, in 30 seconds, answer this question. What do, you, what do you think the play's answer to this question is? I think humans' ability for nobility is what changes them from human to animal. Hmm. Uh, when Albany compares this, well, your tiger is not daughters, right? You're not capable of showing this nobility or honor, this kindness that everyone needs, and therefore you are a savage animal and not a human being. Right. I just think that the difference between an animal and maybe a human is someone's moral strength because yeah. they just compare the dot the the two evil daughters to animals a lot more and Lear to an animal more than any of the other characters. This is so good and so relevant. It's like um okay, this this is a response to what you just said Bailey, but it's going to look like I'm zooming way way out. But it's just that everything everything that Lear says in this scene, I mean this scene is one of the most amazing things Shakespeare ever wrote. It's this amazing mixture of violence and anger, but also extreme moral wisdom. Let me just spend 30 seconds identifying these two extremes, right? So let's start with the violence and the anger. I mean, he he rails against women, for example. He says, 
starting at maybe like 116 or something. Yeah, 121. Down from the waist, they are centaurs, the women all above. He has a fear of sexuality. So from the waist down, they're driven by lust. They're animals, they're centaurs. They have the animalistic urges of a horse. You know, They might look like women from the waist up, but really what drives them is some animal urge. And then he says, more violence. He says, line 177, six-ish, he says, it were a delicate stratagem to shoe a troop of horse with felt. So you could put felt, very soft material on horseshoes. This would enable an army to creep up on the enemy, right? He says, look, I'll put it in proof. Look, I'll do it. And when I have stole upon these son-in-laws, when I've crept up to them, then kill, 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 kill. Murderous rage. But in the same scene, in the same speech, he says things like this. Gloucester says, is it not the king? And King Lear says, I every inch a king. When I do stare, see how the subject quakes. And then he's imagining that people are standing in front of him asking for pardon for sin. He says, I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? So he's forgiving first and asking what the sin is later. Just kind of moral thing to do. Go and sin no more kind of an attitude. Yeah. Um, he says this about pomp around line 160. Through tattered clothes, great vices do appear. Robes and furrowed gowns hide all. So you can hide all kinds of sin if you put fancy enough clothes on it. One more extremely, I think, morally profound thing he says is, um, when we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. A few lines above that, he says, we came crying hither. Thou knowest the first time that we smell the air, we wail and cry. Why do I think this is a moral statement? Because he's, a, he's acknowledging that all humans have suffering in common, even kings. Edgar says to himself, oh, matter and impertinency mixed, reason in madness. My question is, I'm finally getting to it. Why does Shakespeare, at the, I think this is the climax of the play. Why does this climax involve this mixture of impertinency and meaning or matter, vice and virtue? You know, something we've been working is under the assumption, which I think is a valid assumption, that the play is about what humanity is at its first bones. And I think this shows that humans are capable of strong emotion and a lot of what he's saying that the, the kill, 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 this is very strong, uh, savage emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's tempered at the same time with our ability to think and reason. And so mixing the emotional tangents and the reason uh, and enlightenment together shows what the broad extremes of what humanity is capable of that i think animals are not as capable of they're not as capable of maybe this strong emotion or this strong reason so it's the intellect that makes us human love that as bailey said he's now the king of the soil he's a kind of natural king a kind of every man's king you you also said bailey earlier that it's morality that separates us from the animals we see a lot of animal instinct here in Lear, kill, 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 kill. But what do we see also? We see moral wisdom. We are animals, but we have this other layer, right? As Noel is describing, we have this other layer and they coexist. These two layers coexist. I think this is really, really important. There's no such thing as an, a human who's a perfect angel. Even while someone is making moral progress, they are still sinful. You're right. And, and the sooner the sooner we realize that, the better. The, the animals never kill for spite. 
And mm. that is what Lear is doing here. That's what a lot of the thinkers of the time say that humans are worse than animals, right? Because they're capable of killing with that spite. And so in that way, he isn't, I'd say nothing in what he's, he's referring to the animals and the nature and he's using them to govern his, his laws. Like, I'm not going to kill you for sticking with someone else because animals do it all the time. So therefore it's not wrong, but also the emotion that he's doing, the savage desire to kill isn't animalistic. It is still human mixed in with that reason. That's great. I love everything that's been said, but I would just add that Shakespeare, I think, is trying to show the complexity of a human that we are not so perfect, but we're also not so evil. I think especially, and I don't want to bring politics into it, but I think sometimes we can think that one side is evil and one side is perfect, especially in our own frame of mind, that it's easy for us to think that we are we're perfect and that everyone that's against against us um, has evil motives when it's not necessarily that way. Yes. No, bring that into it. That's important. I want these texts to be applicable to our lives. And this is certainly so, something that's governing our present moment, this political polarization. It's all too easy for us to fall into this thinking that we, whoever we are, are right. And they, whoever they are, are wrong. We are all both wrong and right. You know, these two things are inseparable. Okay, we must, before we run out of time, which we're about to talk about scene seven. So he runs off, but is saved and rescued by Cordelia. And the next time we see him, he wait, he kind of is on this bed, I guess, and wakes up in a swoon. This is act four, scene seven, uh, line 42, I guess. Cordelia says, he wakes, speak to him. And the gentleman says, madam, do you, tis fittest. Cordelia, finally, this is like, they re- too much to talk about in five minutes. Cordelia says, how does my royal lord, how fair is your majesty? Here's a quick question. Why has Cordelia been so absent from the play? Why does she leave for, she leaves after scene one. She doesn't return till now. I mean, there might be an earlier two, an early scene or two where she says a few lines, but she's mostly absent. Why? Think about that. I'd love more. I'd love your thoughts. How does my royal lord, how fair is your majesty? Lear, you do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss. So he, he kind of thinks he's dead and that she's an angel. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. I love this because he acknowledges that he is not fit for heaven. Right? It's a confession of guilt. Cordelia, sir, do you know me? Lear, you are a spirit, I know. Where did you die? Cordelia, still, still far wide, right? He's still... That could mean I, st- I still have a long time before I die, or it could mean like, oh, he's still far gone in his mind. Cordelia, oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hand in benediction or me. No, sir, you must not kneel. So that must mean that Lear has knelt down. Why is that significant, that he kneels down? It's, it's a form of penitence of asking forgiveness. I don't know if he ever directly asked forgiveness, at least not in this act because he's not exactly sure who she is, Mm. but that act shows that he's aware that he'd done something wrong and he is asking for forgiveness by kneeling. Excellent. And then uh, she says, no, you must not kneel. And then he says, pray, do not mock me. I am a very foolish, fond old man. It's a very important realization for him. That's what he is. I think we all need to remember that we're all foolish in many ways. The most foolish people are people who don't think they're foolish. You know, it's the first step of wisdom to know that you're foolish. I think this is Socrates. I love what comes next. Sorry, I'm kind of going fast here. 
Lear says, I think this lady to be my child Cordelia. Cordelia, and so I am, I am. Lear, be your tears wet? Yes, Faith, I pray, weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it, right? So when he does start to get an inkling of who she is, he says, take whatever justice or vengeance you want on me. I deserve it. If you want to give me poison, I'll take it because that's what I deserve. A willingness to accept whatever punishment she deems fit. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I know you do not love me for your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. You have some cause. They have not, right? You have reason to hate me. You have cause to hate me. They don't. How amazing is her response? That's not a rhetorical question. I want answers. How amazing is her response? Lear says, you have some cause. They do not. Cordelia, no cause. No cause. Why is this so good? She's already forgiven him, I think. Uh, There is, I'm not going to remember it to quote it exactly, but in uh, Robin Hobb's book, there is a quote that lots of people say, it is too late to apologize for I've already forgiven you. And that's what I, I get here. You have no reason to apologize because the forgiveness has already been done. The purpose of apologizing is to get forgiveness and that has already been done. So you have no cause to ask for forgiveness because it's too late. I have already forgiven you. So wonderful. Yeah. I love that earlier she sends, I think it's like a hundred soldiers to go find him. Hmm. So Early on, she's already forgiven him. She loves him. And I remember there was, there's some line in act four that made me think that she remembers what he was like before his mental capacities started to go. And I think that's a lot of what drives her to love him is because she's able to remember what he was like. And despite all his mental infirmities, one other thing. Can I just add one other thing that I thought was really cool? Um, I think there's a lot of parallels between Gloucester's and Edgar's story and Cordelia and Lear's story, where Edgar and Cordelia almost take on this parental figure for their fathers, where Edgar leads his father, guides him literally as his eyes as he's taking him to Dover. And here Cordelia also Mm -hmm. saves him from wandering aimlessly and in his madness. But they both allow their fathers to fall to rock bottom in a way that I think a lot of parents have to do for their children because they can't make decisions for their own children. They have to let their children learn from their mistakes where Cordelia and Edgar allow their parents to do the same. And their parents are, I think off better because of it. They're able to learn from their mistakes. This is so great. Wow. And it's the responsibility of the children to take after their aging parents. The play shows us this. It doesn't tell us it. It shows this to us. It's the responsibility of children to forgive, responsibility of humans to forgive each other. It's like what you say, Noel, like forgive more or less instantly, not just to forgive, but to forget. She doesn't say, well, I did have cause but I have forgiven you. No such reason ever existed. It's erased from existence. So it's one thing to forgive, but then secretly kind of hold this grudge or keep bringing it up or keep mentioning it or remember it. That's not real forgiveness, you know? It's totally absolute. And it's, it's not even he's perfect. He's not a perfect man. We just saw on the previous, he's still angry and still blind in some ways. 
It's like the you can still feel sympathy and forgiveness for others whose faults haven't really totally changed, you know? And then she says, then Lear says this one, am I in France? <laughs> is this heaven? No. Oh, well, it, it must be France then. I don't know what that means. I love that. This is either heaven or France. And then Ken says, in your own kingdom, sir. Maybe we'll end here on this comment. Kent says, in your own kingdom, sir. Is this line ironic? Is it, to, if you were a sta- uh, the director, would you stage this for laughs? Because it's not, I mean, is it his kingdom? Not anymore, you know, but I don't, or is it serious? What, what's your take on this line? How is it to be read? Serious and uh, calming for, for Lear. Kent has been, is, is such a good friend and stalwart friend to Lear throughout the whole play that I can't imagine him using this as a mocking or as mm. a joking manner. You're here in your own kingdom. You are still, I think he's trying to give him the portion of his own identity back. This is your kingdom. You're still king. You're in a place where you belong still, uh, despite everything that has happened. I would second that. It sounds almost like a, you're home. Mm. Home, home is a great word. I, I love what you, what you said, Noel. Like Kent wants to emphasize that Lear still has respect and authority even while he's losing his land to these invading armies. So maybe he doesn't have a kingdom anymore, literally. Maybe Kent is also right on another level. You are in the presence of Cordelia. This is your new kingdom. You know, this is your home. It's way smaller than it used to be. But hey, it's it matters more than all that other stupid land. You know, this is the true kingdom. It's where you belong. Thank you both so much for a great chat. Good luck with all that math and with all that reading. Sounds good. Thank you. Since Act 4 contains that wonderful scene of forgiveness and reconciliation between Lear and Cordelia, I wanted today's poem of the day to be uh, this small little wonderful poem by Wendell Berry called Enemies. If you are not to become a monster, you must care what they think. If you care what they think, how will you not hate them and so become a monster of the opposite kind? From where then is love to come? Love for your enemy that is the way of liberty. From forgiveness. Forgiven, they go free of you and you of them. They are to you as sunlight on a green branch. You must not think of them again, except as monsters like yourself, pitiable because unforgiving. Okay, that's it for now. Up next will be our final chat about King Lear, a discussion about Act 5.